this week on Life and Faith. I would hate to leave my kids and my wife now, but based on my two minutes, it wouldn't be something that I would be capable of pouring over or worrying about or agonizing over because based on those two minutes, there is no consciousness. There is no ability to look back. To place yourself before other people is something that's lost. But we can't see all the way back to the very beginning. That's what everybody would like to know. We lack the vocabulary for that in secular society. Liberalism is also an ideology. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And this week we're talking about death and mortality and attitudes to death. And it might sound a bit morbid, but I think this is going to be interesting, Justine. And we're not the only ones thinking about this subject. Even the Barbie movie brings it up in a provocative way. You've seen this. Yes, I think you've seen it as well. (laughs) Um, But it's been in the trailers. You know, she's living her best Barbie life until she starts to think about death. And then suddenly Mm. it's all a bit grim. (laughs) And she develops flat feet, which is a certain sign of mortality. Cold shower, Ooh. falling off my roof, ah! and my heels are on the ground. <gasps> now, Simon, you've also been going to some funerals lately. Is this why you've got death on the brain? Probably. Uh, I have been going to funerals, sorry to say, but it's, it tends to be at the moment anyway, friends, parents, or my parents' friends, actually, quite a lot of those. Sometimes my own friends, but I have seemed to have reached a certain age just then. I'm in that stage, perhaps. But funerals, I find, are these moments in life where if you let yourself stop to think long enough while you're there, there's something really profound and you know, obviously universal and unifying about our sadness at these times, but also our hopes and our imaginations as we think about what life means and perhaps the destiny of the person who's departed. Is there more to this story, we might ask, these kinds of questions? Now, what about you, Justine? Do you think about death much? Uh, I want to ask you, have you made a will? Mm. Have you thought about your own funeral, these sorts of things? Yeah, I I have made a will. I think it's a fairly normal thing to do when you've got young kids, you know, yep. try and work out who will provide for them. Um, I don't think about death very much. I think that we live in a very distracted age where everything on WhatsApp gets flattened to the same significance. So I've got a wart has the same significance as my auntie died. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like in a way, yeah. I don't have a wart, by the way. Um, but yeah, I do think about death when I'm at a funeral, but other times I can easily be distracted from it. I do feel weird every time I have to go for a scan of some kind. Like my health is pretty good and I probably do take that for granted a lot. So when there's just even a tiny blip, I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. Um, and I... I do feel very sad that I won't be alive at my funeral because <laughs> I, right. I would like to hear You're people sure. say nice things about me. But yeah, I also think about the, the idea of what is the story of someone's life and who gets to tell it. I'm also haunted by the fact that even if you, know, you, you get all your significant others to get up and talk about you at your funeral, 
there's no right of reply. The dead person cannot rise from the grave and correct the record. Or, <laughs> And even then, does the dead person have the full story? Maybe not. So I'm tantalised by this idea of a fuller story, but who gets to keep that? Who gets to tell that? So these are the questions that I'm really kind of haunted by. It's very hard to sum up a life in that moment. Although I do find whenever people do, it's very moving. Now, these are all very interesting questions, and they're kind of in the background for what we want to talk about today. Chris Harrison is a longtime journalist. He's the opinion editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. But it was as a writer of an opinion piece in this section of the paper that caught our attention, Justin, and plenty of others too. And it was a fascinating article that told the story of Harrison returning to a sports field to watch his son play a game. But this particular field was profoundly significant for Chris and his family. He hadn't been back there since he was 12 years old when he came face to face with death. And he was kind enough to come into the studio to talk about that formative moment. Well, it was a normal game of cricket in one sense, but it was an abnormal game of cricket in the other sense in that it was a representative game. So the bowling was faster than anything I'd seen before, and that's mm. my excuse. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, was opening batsman. He bowled a bouncer. He was very quick. I played over the top of it, missed it, but it didn't miss me. hit me in the heart. And I remember this incredible searing pain. Apparently, I walked 12 paces in the direction of the clubhouse. Everybody thought I was heading for the clubhouse. But I only remember the first step. I was unconscious. Then I collapsed. One of the spectators uh, was a doctor, uh, and he brought me back to life. Uh, Because your heart stopped. My heart stopped, yeah. He had to give me cardiac massage, mouth-to-mouth, cardiac massage, mouth-to-mouth. And he told the ambulance people that I was clinically dead for at least two minutes, in his opinion. Then the ambulance people arrived. Uh, All my vital signs were good. So they said to my father, you can drive behind in your own car if you like. He's looking good. I had another cardiac arrest in the ambulance. You know what Saturday Sydney traffic's like. So the, uh, the ambulance mounted the median strip and tore off down the other side. My poor father's sitting behind it thinking, well, should I follow it? Or So he said it was the longest 45 minutes of his life. Uh-huh. Anyway, long story short, um, yes, I was, uh, um, by all reports, clinically dead for two minutes and had a um, pretty awesome time of it. Did the second time, so you're in the ambulance, your heart stops again. So there was there another sort of dramatic you know, effort to revive you there? Yes, but it was instantaneous. Like, there was no... I wasn't clinically dead in the ambulance, apparently. They jumped straight onto me because they were right next to me. Yeah. But I didn't have an experience that I can remember in the ambulance, whereas on the actual grass I had an experience I can remember. You wrote about this in in the Sydney Morning Herald, a very moving article about that. And it was... The thing that led you to write this was that you had your own son's Saturday sport commitment. There was a particularly interesting one. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, I was just, you know, what fathers and mothers do on a Friday night. They check which far-flung field they're going to have to take their kids to the next morning, and they groan, but, you know, secretly they're happy because it's great when you get there, but, you know, it's like, oh God, what time do I get up? <laughs> have to get up tomorrow morning. And, and I saw the name of the field where the incident 30 years prior had happened and I just froze because I had not been back there. I'd never felt the need to go back there. And then all of a sudden I realized I had to go back there. And I felt very, very unusual about the whole thing. Yeah, tell us about that. Did it create a sense of anxiety or panic? What, What did it feel like? No, no anxiety or panic in me whatsoever, but for my child, 
It actually made me comprehend the experience right. for other people better than me because I realized I'd never kind of not apologized because I didn't need to apologize, but I've never I'd never actually kind of held my dad and said to him like that must have been terrible for you rather than me yeah. because like you know, I put myself now, I'm a father now, and he was a father then, and he had a mortgage to think about, he had his job stresses, he had to fit taking his son to sport, all the things going on in his life at that time. And I realized that if what happened to me happened to my son in front of me, I would have yeah. been an absolute mess. Yeah. So I kind of, it kind of made me really appreciate my dad and my parents, what they'd been through, rather than what I'd gone through. It wasn't a selfish feeling at all. I had no problems going back there, but I did feel kind of weird about the whole thing. Did you nonetheless, you must have been a bit pensive as you got to that place and yeah. saw that, you know, mate, maybe relived it a bit. Oh, a hundred percent. And we kind of did almost like when my daughter heard where we were going, she said, oh, I'm coming. Right. And my son uh, obviously was playing. So he came along and my dad said, can I come along? Mm. So we took a photograph on the actual, we, my dad took 12 paces, you know, towards the clubhouse. And he said, this would be the actual place where it happened because yeah. he was actually the square leg umpire because because <laughs> it was a representative game. We were supposed to have two umpires yep. and only one of them turned up. So he was going square leg to square leg to help out right, with the, so the broom, he, you know. Yeah. So he was actually on the field when it happened. Yeah. So he said, I remember it was here. So we stood there. We took a photograph for the Sydney Morning Herald, you know. Um, mm. But it was all very, it wasn't, a, it, it was just a, it was all very factual. You know, the kids were all kind of wowed by the whole thing, but they didn't quite understand it. Yeah. But I guess it brought us all together. It was mm. a nice time and it was good to be able to explain to my children and my father what I've learned from the experience. We'll return to Chris Harrison and his interpretation of that event a little later. But first, we have an interview with Marianne Rosario from Theos Think Tank in the UK and the co-author of the report, Ashes to Ashes, Beliefs, Trends and Practices in Dying, Death and the Afterlife. Simon, you spoke to Marianne about this report, which delves into what the trends are in the UK in attitudes towards death and dying and the afterlife, as well as the role of faith communities, it sounds like, in caring for people who are dying or who have lost someone. Yes, and it is the UK, but we thought we could draw some things from that for here in Australia and other parts around the world. And the report draws on a wide range of data. There's experts in the field, academics, death industry professionals, faith leaders and focus groups, that kind of thing. And they're asking questions around beliefs, what people think a good death is, for example, and practices and memorialization of the dead, beliefs about the afterlife, these kinds of things. Here's Marianne Rosario from her home in the UK. We've kind of seen a trend of popular television programs, podcasts, and books, kind of all talking about the topic of death. People want to talk about it as a topic, but perhaps when they want to contemplate their own death, or the death of a close loved one, they're a bit more hesitant. So when it becomes that kind of personalised sort of way, are they actually preparing for their own death? Perhaps not. Yes, and, and the reason for the listening, reading, talking is somewhat related to COVID and the, the pandemic and what's happened in those years. I think it is related to COVID in some ways, but I think it's sort of also before that, I think we've seen a trend in um, the number of podcasts, for example, increasing before COVID, but maybe all coming to a head during the COVID kind of pandemic. Obviously, during the pandemic, everyone was talking more about death. It was kind of the main topic on the news everywhere, surrounded by us. So that conversation was very much there. But like I said, it's a topic of discussion. But is it being brought 
on a personal level, that's kind of the question where we're at now. So have we hit a point where we're kind of saturated by all this kind of death conversation around us? But has that led to anything more kind of practically on a personal level? Not sure. In Western countries like yours and ours, we've sometimes been described as a death-haunted culture. Mm, interesting. I wonder if that has any resonance for you. Absolutely. I think it is there. Everyone obviously knows we're all going to die. But yet, does that mean that in our society we're more prepared for it? We, it's still we want to avoid that conversation. We don't want to have those conversations with our loved ones about what do they want at the end of their lives? How do they want to be cared for? How what does their funeral want to look like? It's this weird kind of topic that people know that maybe we should be talking about more, but too scared, too afraid, fear it, don't want to talk about it because it's too hard sometimes. Yeah, I've reached an age where not only am I continually seeing reports of people dying who were kind of institutions, you know, for me, people you think are always going to be there. And it's a bit, yeah. it's kind of a bit shocking, to be honest. There's certain stages of life, aren't there, that these things come into sharper focus. Yes, I do think, you know, obviously when you're older, you're going to be thinking about it more, perhaps. Having said that, from our research and what I was quite um, struck by was we interviewed an elderly focus group. We wanted to do a broad spectrum. So an elderly focus group we interviewed as well as a, a younger person focus group at a university. Um, we didn't pick this younger person group. It was just a university group. They could sign up. Right. And they really wanted to talk about death. Mm. They, some of them had experiences of family members dying. They were fascinated by the topic, thinking about concepts of the afterlife, were thinking about funeral arrangements. And that really surprised me because I was expecting the absolute opposite. We wanted to say, have you thought about death before? And I expected the result to be no, I have not. In contrast, when I spoke to their elderly focus group, obviously they had thought about these kind of ideas before, but it was very kind of, oh, I don't really know what I want for my funeral. And these were people in their mid-80s, in a kind of group that was designed to talk about death. So, but they had really interesting ideas of going, oh, maybe I've changed my mind every kind of two years. I might want something different. I might want an alternative funeral now. That surprised me. What did people consider a good death and therefore a not so good death? Um, that concept of a good death was um, contested. I would definitely say that to start with. Yeah. Um, there were definitely people who said, I don't really like that concept. don't really agree with it. What if you get hit by a car? Does that mean it's not a good death? However, having said all of that, there were kind of reoccurring themes, both based upon um, existing polling data that we analysed as well as our own. Um, and there were kind of four categories that kind of emerged. One was that people didn't want to be in pain or to suffer. The second one was they wanted to die at home or being surrounded by their close loved ones. Thirdly, peace. They wanted to find reconciliation or some kind of peace at the end of their lives in terms of their relationships. And the fourth one was being prepared, whether that was practically, so writing wills, having their finances in order, having funeral arrangements prepared, that kind of thing. But also for some faith groups, it was making sure the rituals were adhered to according to their practices. So those kind of four categories emerged as the kind of main four there were some nuances in some of them. For example, we spoke to a, um, a medical doctor who said, yes, a lot of people say one of the top things about what makes a good death is um, not being in pain. 
and people really fear that. Mm. And he was talking about how um, actually modern medicine right now is excellent. It's so good in terms of trying to get on top of pain management, palliative medicine, hospices were really highlighted. Excellent, excellent resources um, to get on top of pain management. We also spoke to um, a director of a charity who often spoke about Catherine Mannock's idea about um, explaining the death, the process of when someone dies. And she speaks about the very ordinary kind of laboured forms of breathing that happens to a body when it's at the last kind of moments. Loved ones often beside those who are dying perceive that as their loved one in pain, but actually she explains it as that's really normal. Mm. When it came to kind of um, being around loved ones as they die, people often said, yes, I want to be around loved ones. I want to be, you know, that's who I want beside me as I die. But often we had reports of those working in hospices saying that actually they can't quantify this as such, but um, anecdotally they had many cases where the person who was um, dying actually died in that one hour when their loved one was not there in the room. Um, And so really interesting kind of ideas there. There's been a big change in a move away from organised religion, institutional church, for instance. Um, And your report says that, I think I'm right in saying this, that less than 10% of people prioritise having spiritual or religious needs met even at the point of death is that the case like people are still determinedly or consistently let's say secular in their approach yeah some of the data that we found this is not our own um but we've reported it in the report from the co-op for example their statistic was one in ten people now want a religious funeral that was quite a shocking statistic for us in comparison to you know about 50 percent of the population here just under now according to the last census being christian or ticking christian on the census so that's quite a significant decline according to their statistics um in our own research we definitely did find perhaps a decline in people wanting traditional funerals people perhaps thinking they're more expensive people not desiring it, wanting either no funeral at all, and we have to acknowledge that, wanting direct kind of cremation, they are on the increase, um, Mm. or increasingly these kind of secular celebrations of life, that they can happen in any sorts of kind of places. I spoke to one secular celebrant who said they did a celebration of life in a seedy bar, in a car showroom, because that's where that person had worked, Mm. in a woodland setting, all these kind of ideas. Um, They want people to wear colour of yellow, they want to give out chocolate bars, Really, really different concepts to kind of a traditional funeral. Having said that, however, what I thought was really important to highlight was that actually I spoke to one secular celebrant who said over half of the secular celebrations of life that he conducts, the family or the person who's about to die and planning their funeral has requested the Lord's Prayer. So that was a really interesting dynamic to kind of contemplate. So there's this kind of Christian language. And if it's not the Lord's Prayer, they want Psalm 23 or they want language of welcoming home. So Christian language is still kind of wanted, desired, even in the midst of this kind of increasingly celebrations of life kind of scenario that we find ourselves in. This is Life and Faith, and we're talking about death and mortality today. And I'm speaking with Marianne Rosario, who is the co-author of the report by Theos Think Tank in the UK, titled Ashes to Ashes, Beliefs, Trends and Practices in Dying, Death and the Afterlife. And thinking about 
practices of memorialisation of the dead today, I read in the report that even in apparently secular services, there was very often an appeal to non-material things, spiritual things, things like praying to Mother Earth or the stars or some sort of power. And that's an interesting dynamic. We're not talking about an entirely materialistic sense of what's going on in these services. The non-religious are the growing category of people now, over 50%, according to the UK census. And in a previous Theos report, 20% of those people actually said, I do believe in life after death. So you would expect them not to, but actually 20% say they do. An interviewee that we um, interviewed for this Ashes to Ashes report said, I'm 100% not religious. I 100% do not believe in God but I 100% believe that there is life after death. So all those kind of nuances come out. Was your sense, Marianne, as you went through this material, that faith communities really have a role here in dealing with bereavement and thinking about life and death and deeper questions? Uh, Because people maybe have no, no longer access to strong answers to these questions. Absolutely. There's a chapter at the end of the report where we kind of look at what's the role for churches and faith communities. And our kind of argument is that they have such an important and vital role to play both as pastoral carers, but also as theological accompaniers. So they offer that kind of emotional, social and importantly, spiritual support to those who face death and also to the bereaved. And as theological companies, they walk alongside, that's their role, to walk alongside the dying and the bereaved, offering them um, just the space, the, the opportunity to really explore these kind of understandings of living in the context of dying. And I think what's really important is that, for example, the role of chaplains is that they journey with that dying person from the moment they're in contact with them, but also beyond their death, to their loved ones that they leave behind, those part of their communities, those faith communities, those faith communities are essential for those who are bereaved. One of the recommendations from the report is actually better bereavement support in churches and faith communities. We had some excellent examples from other faith traditions, um, from both Islamic traditions and from the Hindu traditions of the faith community kind of rallying around the family that are bereaved, providing food and practical support um, We also had a really good example from um, the Centre for the Art of Dying Well, who have just set up a partnership with St. Vincent de Paul's Society, and they are um, training end-of-life companions, they call them. So these are people, ordinary members of the public, who desire to volunteer as end-of-life companions to support those who are dying, those who, the family of those who are dying, to support them, those kind of ideas. So it's not just leaders in these kind of faith groups. It's also that community, that community support is essential. Yes, and I wonder if partly this sort of Western distance between us and death, death's been so sanitised and pushed off into corners that we never go until we're faced with this, with someone we love or or our own situation. And it doesn't maybe seem the healthiest practice, actually. No, absolutely not. We do need to talk about this more. We do need Mm. to talk about it amongst our loved ones. And also we have to recognise that actually different members of the same family will believe different things. So actually telling your loved one your kind of requests, your desires, 
to what happens to your body once you die is important. Don't assume that your children, your grandchildren know that. Um, so having those conversations, I, I think, are really important. And yes, I think you're right. Western society, we kind of, you know, yeah. you, you keep that apart. You don't want to have those conversations because it's hard. It's difficult. Um, and um, we spoke in a report a little bit about death cafes. A couple of focus groups were on death cafes. Um, those kind of networks were, were great at kind of talking about this subject a bit more. Yeah, tell me what that is. I saw that in the report, but tell us what these death cafes are. Yeah, so death cafes are kind of um, pop-up kind of networks in informal settings where they discuss the topic of death. Some people might have, have had a bereavement close to them. Others maybe are just interested in it. Um, but just, yeah, groups to talk about death in a healthier way. We have other recommendations in um, the report that kind of suggest actually churches, faith communities could be doing more in terms of practical support. So will writing kind of sessions in faith kind of group settings or helping people sort out their finances or um, that kind of thing, kind of like practical ways mm. um, would also be of benefit for churches and faith communities to do. That was Marianne Rosario from Theos Think Tank in the UK. Now, Simon, let's go back to your conversation with Chris Harrison and pick up the thread here, because we've just heard about this incredible experience of playing cricket on a Saturday morning and then being struck over the heart by a ball and being clinically dead for two minutes. Yes, you don't often get to talk to someone who's gone through something like that. (laughs) And come back. (laughs) No, and I was very interested in the way that Chris interprets that experience. Now, naturally, he's spent time processing that event and what was going on for him in those moments and also how that has influenced him in the way he's lived his life since. And he says that after the initial pain, what he experienced was not unpleasant. It was a state that he says he would have happily remained in, even though he's now glad that he didn't. Here's Chris again. Yeah, I mean, I'm frequently glad that I didn't. Um, Look, what my memories of it, and this is something that I think about daily almost, even though I don't dwell on it and it hasn't affected me physically, possibly mentally, but not physically in any way, um, is the fact that my memories of it are, I believe, my memories of coming back. So everybody talks about the the white light, the warmth and all those things, and I can 100% say that I experienced those things, Mm. right? Um, there would be no motivation for me to say that I did experience those cliched things if I hadn't experienced them. But my genuine belief is that I experienced them as I was coming back rather than as I was going in. And as I said in the article, most of the people who report that are people who have come back. Yeah. Because it goes without saying that those who didn't, (laughs) Aren't here to tell um, don't, Aren't writing too many articles. Yeah. Um, and one thing I was at pains to point out, and this is that I speak for myself and I do not speak for other people's experience. And I have no interest in doing that. Mm. But based on my experience, I believe that that bright light and that feeling of warmth was as I was coming back. Yeah. Having said that, where I was, was just not a place where anything was wrong or bad or troublesome in my life. It was a state of nothingness. I was only two minutes in though. And, and this is another thing I point out in the ar- article is that I was, I was 12. I hadn't really 
sinned <laughs> by any In a dramatic stretch of the imagination. Fashion, yeah. Since since the age of twelve, I've you know I've done a few things, and I could possibly be heading in a different direction these days. I don't know, but it was a very peaceful state. Uh, but again, that warmth and that wonderful light and that. I do believe it was as I was coming back into consciousness yes. rather than leaving consciousness. Was it an experience of being kind of extinguished? Like as in, no, you talked in your article about, you know, there was nothing bad or, you know, there's no sense of um, fear. Mm. But was that because it was a, a shutting down of something or is there something non-material that you were sort of experiencing there or that you were open to? There was no cognition of shutting down. Yes. Okay. There was no cognition of I am now dead. Yeah. I am now in the afterlife. I am now in any pain. There, there was no cognition. It was just like they pulled the curtains over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so there was no, there's only an ability for me to assess the state that I was in because I've come back. But I am confident that if I had stayed there, there would be absolutely no possibility or capability to assess where I was or what was happening to me. It was just the end. Yeah. I remember the pain in the chest because it was before the end. Yep. But I don't remember 13 or 12 of the 14 steps that I made. Um, I only remember this wonderful feeling because I came back. But I do know that there was, so I don't want to contradict myself, but I do know that even though I say there was no capability of understanding, I know that there was nothing wrong. Mm. So I do not fear that state. How did this event change the way you subsequently lived? Did it change the way you thought about life from then on? It changed the way I thought about life until I had something to lose. And what I mean by that is, uh, so when I left school, I became an aerobatics pilot and I was fearless in that. Um, I traveled the world, put my life in a backpack. I had no fears. Well, I, I didn't have many fears. Um, and I, I thought, you know, I didn't, I didn't kind of explicitly say it to myself, you've, had, you've got a second chance of life, so live it to the full. It sounds a bit Hollywood. But <laughs> I think that's essentially what was going on. I was very, very outgoing. Yep. And yet, having said that, I didn't play cricket again. So there was obviously a fear of, um, of not wanting to repeat that experience. But then I had children, and suddenly life was very important again. I got married, I had children, and I had people, other people I needed to care about. And so now I am fearful of death, mm. but not because of the physicality of my own death. If it happened this afternoon, it would, I mean, I know from my experience that it couldn't possibly be a bother to me personally, but I genuinely worry about who I would leave behind um, and have I provided enough for them and how would they go without me? And I know that if I were to go, they would be the people who suffer my death, those people who I left behind. I would hate to leave my kids now and my wife now, but it wouldn't be something that, based on my two minutes, it wouldn't be something that I would be capable of pouring over or worrying about or agonizing over if I did go. Yep. Because for me, based on those two minutes, there is no consciousness. There is no ability to look back and grieve, if you like. The only grieving, in my opinion, is done by the people who stay. The people because they know of your experience, like me, do they like to talk to you about death? Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. I'm in the journalism game. Anytime you write something that everybody has to interact with at some stage, like if you publish a piece on travel and flying, lots of people go flying, so the story does well. Death is the one thing that it's going to affect everybody. Yeah. And most people are frightened of it. 
Mm. Um, you know, the traffic on that piece was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. we're talking nearly a million views. Yeah. You know, people through search still come across that story. Yes, a lot of people ask me about death and dying, and I say the same thing to all of them, mm. which is what I have said to you. I do not fear death in any way based on my experience, not even in the slightest. Mm. But the problem is that people you leave behind, that's the issue. So the fear of death for me is that, not the actual physicality. And also, you know, the least painful way to the grave would also be nice. That's Sydney Morning Herald opinion editor Chris Harrison on his brush with death and his way of processing it. Now, Justine, while we were prepping this episode, the very well-known and loved New York pastor Timothy Keller died at aged 72, which feels young these days. He died of cancer, and he'd been battling that for some time. Yeah, uh, this had become quite a theme in his recent years as a result. He wrote a small book on death just before his diagnosis. But it's also a very different thing to write a book about something and then to actually face your death, right? But apparently his son reported that Keller's final words said to his wife, Kathy, were, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest, Hmm. which is... A very, I mean, I have no words. It's it's such a, what a thing to say. I mean, he would recognise his family would grieve him, and he wouldn't want to leave them. But what I think is really striking about that is that there's such a confidence in the face of death. There, yeah, it's interesting. I think it was struck a lot of people. He did certainly didn't have a death wish. Uh, he made that very clear. But his confidence that you described is entirely born out of his faith. He has this faith in Christ. He has this faith that this is not the end of the story. So that seemed to stay with him right through his life, but also as he faced death. So both, interesting to me, both Chris Harrison and Tim Keller feel that we have no reason to fear death, but they do take it from entirely different foundations. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. And if, as Marion tells us, it's a healthy thing to think about death, to talk about death, and to think about what it means to live a full life, then hopefully we've helped you do that today. So thanks so much to Chris Harrison for coming to speak with us about his childhood brush with death. It's an amazing story. And also thank you to Marianne Rosario from Theos Think Tank in the UK. We'll put a link to their report in the show notes and also to Chris's article. And, as always, thanks to our producer, the illustrious Alan Douthwaite. Next week. Public life is exhausting. Elected public life is exhausting. It should be exhausting. I had the opportunity to uh, talk to some new politicians who'd been freshly elected, and I told them to just remember that you're always at work. If something happens at 2am on a Sunday morning, you're at work. <laughs>